You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximize their success and how HSBC is helping them. Listeners should note that this episode has been recorded remotely. Therefore, the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to our Tomorrow Ready virtual event series for 2021. My name's Juliet Foster. I'm a broadcaster and journalist and also your host for today's event, Accessing Global Opportunities. It's a big subject, which is why we have an excellent lineup of speakers for you on hand to share their insights and discussions to bring our programme to life. So just to give you an idea of what's going to happen, I'm going to introduce our speakers, then stand back to give them the opportunity to give us a quick background on their roles and experience. It is a fantastic panel. So let's meet the first of our panelists. We have Lorenzo Rossetti. Now, Lorenzo is Director Trade and Customs from KPMG. So Lorenzo, it's great to see you. I'm going to stand back so that you can tell the audience a bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Thanks, Juliet. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Lorenzo. I'm a director in the trade and customs practice at, at KPMG. And I always start these sorts of discussions with a confession. And the confession is I wanted to be a customs officer when I was 13. I'm very sorry. I apologize for that. And I achieved that at the age of 18. So I've spent about 38 years. And thank you for saying I don't look old enough. I spent about 38 years in the field of customs, both within HMRC, customs and excise as it was then, in the custom software industry and in consultancy. So I'm, I'm involved in advising clients on how they minimize and mitigate duty, but also how they comply and how they, how they increase their volume of products moving across the border. Okay, Lorenzo, thank you so much for your confession as well. And if it's any consolation, you don't look any younger than me, but I'm not going to tell you how old I am. But uh, let's move on to our next guest. This is Lorne Berry. Lorne is the Chief Financial and Business Development Officer from Brompton Bicycles. Lorne, it's very good to see you. What confessions would you like to make whilst you tell our online audience about your role and the things that you do? I suppose mine is around the longest job title you could ever really have. And, and that's really an accountant who had a midlife crisis who kind of need to break away from the numbers and reach far wider into the business. So yes, I've been with Brompton now 12 years. So we are about 70% of our bicycles are exported overseas. We still manufacture here in West London and we, we export in about 46 markets. So yeah. The topic today is very relevant to um, what we're going for, some of the challenges and some of the real highs of, of exporting and going global. Okay, thank you so much for that, Lorne. And finally, we have Ian Tandy. Ian is the Managing Director, Global Trade and Receivables Finance for HSBC UK. Ian, good to see you. Is there anything that you'd like to share with us? Because we've heard about having a midlife crisis and wanting to be a customs officer from the age of 13. Can you beat that? <laughs> I can't beat it, but I can definitely beat Lorne with the longest job title. And thank you very much for reading that one out. That saved me a bit of breath there, Juliet, to be perfectly honest. Uh, my job is essentially to, and I'm part of Team HSBC, as you referenced. My job is a great job. My job is to help companies to trade internationally, to help them to get paid, to finance, to, to mitigate some of the risk that they particularly have. In terms of midlife crisis, um, maybe not yet, Juliet. 
<laughs> okay, I'm not even going to tell you if I've had mine. But look, it's fantastic to see you all because I know you're really busy and we appreciate the fact that you've taken the time out to be with us. And Ian, it does seem appropriate that since you're the last person to introduce yourself, you get the first question. I believe in democracy. This is why I've saved it for you. But look, it's a really difficult climate in which businesses are actually trading. So from your perspective, how are your internationally trading clients responding to the pandemic? If you had to assess them, would you give them an excellent or somewhere in between not bad, but could do better? Well, I'm a banker who's talking to customers, so I'm always going to say excellent to that question, Julia. But I mean, let's be clear, it's an incredibly and it has been an incredibly challenging time for not only, you know, on a personal level, but also on a business level without a shadow. It's a health crisis of a magnitude many of us, I think most of us haven't seen before. And what we've seen is we've seen that companies have taken stock of their position. They've considered their business model. In many cases, they've bought forward digitization initiatives. I know certainly from a bank's point of view, we have. I'd never worked from home a day in my life before. And now I'm sitting here on a video conference talking to, to many of you. And we have to recognize that many companies, especially in 2020, were very much in survival mode. But we can sense that that's changing. We can sense that certainly from a UK point of view, we're opening up. The GDP stats are better. I mean, they couldn't get any worse than where they, what happened in 2020. And we are sensing and we are in the conversation with our customers they're thinking about the, the future they're moving from survival to thrive final thing is I think it's been a huge opportunity for many of us on a personal level but also for companies to just take some time and to sit back and think about the strategy take stock of the situation and, and hopefully build that better on behalf which we all need to do you know to support this country that we live in yeah, and some great points there in that answer. Now, I want to open them up, in fact, we're going back to you, Lorne, because look, I mean, Ian rightly pointed out that this isn't just an economic crisis, COVID-19, it's a health crisis as well. But at the same time, this has been the chance for some businesses to perhaps take stock, look at what they do and perhaps find ways of doing it better. So from your perspective, what has been your international expansion strategy? Has it been slowed up because of COVID-19 or have you actually found that one of the positives is that you've been able to accelerate it? If I go back to the start, so... We never intended to export. We were manufacturing our bike and we were just tinkering along at first, just doing UK and, and that was all fine. We then had some enthusiastic amateurs. Um, we had one in Germany and one in the Netherlands who approached us. Dutch guy turned up with a mushroom van. So he had a van half full of Bromptons, which he paid for sort of when he arrived. And so half mushrooms, half Bromptons, and off he trotted back to the Netherlands and very similar sort of with Germany. So we were very, it was opportunistic how it first started. But then we had this period where demand was growing quite rapidly and we couldn't keep up with the demand, but we stepped back and we thought we could be reaching saturation. We didn't know where saturation point was. So we decided we needed to expand. We needed to be more global. And so we had a lot of inquiries, Spain, France, Germany, Japan. And so we just fell on some distributors. We also then decided we wanted to be in Taiwan and we decided to have a beauty parade. So it's a different approach, but we decided to go with a distributor model. So we felt that was least risky. So with that, we have visibility because the orders were coming in in lumps. The distributor was taking the risk on the stock, but th that was how we were doing it. But then yeah, not, this isn't related to COVID. This is going back a few years before that, but then we started to change what we actually wanted out of the business. Every business has power in data. We needed to get closer to our customer. We needed to control our brand. And we gave probably too much away to these distributors. 
So five years ago, two thirds of our business was selling through distributors. Now that's in single digits. We own territories. So for us, the strategy is around omnichannel. It's this endless, seamless, endless aisle where we actually have our bricks and mortar. We have our e-commerce sites where we're getting closer to customers. For us, it isn't around taking on new territories. We have enough of those. It's focusing on cities. So yeah, China was mentioned quite heavily sort of earlier. Yeah, China has 15, 20 cities with populations of over 10 million. You may think you've cracked a country, but you haven't necessarily. So for us, we're drilling a little bit further. And yeah, I get to train into Waterloo quite a lot. And I so many Bromptons, and it's fantastic to see. And that's what we want to replicate in Shanghai, in Beijing, in Berlin, in Madrid. So for us, the strategy is around omnichannel and it's a very city focused strategy. Mm, which makes sense as well, because I guess that you're also benefiting from the green movement, too, because it seems that more of us are abandoning our cars or if we haven't abandoned them completely, we're not using them quite so much. So for you, that's fantastic because you're offering a nice, safe alternative, a healthy alternative to get around. Exactly. Our quirky little bike. We've been talking about this for years, but now everybody's beginning to get it. You know, who wants to be stuck on a tube, put people sneezing and sort of germs all around you? You could be on a bike. Yeah, it's lovely weather today. Perfect for cycling. So, yeah, our little bike, it saves people on gym membership. It's good for their mental well-being. It's getting them healthy and it's, it takes away from pollution as well. So I think that message is now getting through to people. So we're beginning to get some real traction. All right, so Lorenzo, I guess that you'll be abandoning the underground for the bike. But I mean, look, from your perspective, how do you think that companies go about optimizing their customers' duty position? Because it's all very well and good to talk about breaking out into foreign markets, but there is the customs thing, which uh, for some businesses can be a bit of a headache. It can indeed, Julia. From my perspective, dealing with customs initially is about knowledge and data. You need to understand your supply chains. You need to uh, understand where the potential pinch points are. And customs isn't just about duty. It's not just about tax. It's about the process of actually moving goods across borders. And to do that, you need data. You need that, the availability of data through a number of different actors within that supply chain. At the moment, we're also, as we know, that the UK are, in, are negotiating what appear to be almost daily trade agreements. So optimizing your customer's position is also about ensuring that you understand how you get the benefit of those export trade agreements, how you can get product manufactured in the UK into these other territories without the duty bill that would be there if you didn't meet those particular agreements. And it's about things, simple things like inco terms and understanding who is responsible for what in that supply chain. We, we've seen that, you know, what's happened between the UK and the EU has been that sort of microcosm where we've seen the majority of companies actually going back and reviewing their inco terms, reviewing how they process imports and exports, how they deal with data and move that data across the supply chain. And if we look further afield, it will become much more important as we forge these links with other territories. You know, we're talking about the, the trade deal with, with Australia, potentially. We're clearly still talking to the US if we can get through the chlorinated chicken issues. We're still talking to the US about trade deals. And, and all of these things actually revolve around knowledge and data. It's all about the data. 
Right, which is where somebody like you is going to be really busy and you're, you're going to be suddenly become everybody's BFF because you've got that knowledge and data and you have to follow these trade negotiations to see what they produce. But I mean, if you're looking at tax and customs considerations, what is it that businesses need to take into account if they're going to set up overseas? Because there is no one size fits all on this and look, tax regs are changing all the time. Absolutely. And the key issues are about that go back to the knowledge word, local knowledge, understanding what types of registrations you need to have. And it might be as simple as just getting a number and that number identifies you. There might be a requirement for, for example, fiscal representation. There might be a requirement for a declarant in country who is established. You might have to become established. So there are lots of very specific issues within different territories that need to be looked at. So you're right, it isn't a one size fits all. And that's where time is required, actually digging into the individual requirements within individual territories is hugely important to understand how you need to be set up. Blowing the trumpet for UK government, the Department for International Trade has done a lot of work. There's a lot of information within um, gov.uk that provides you with the basics of what you need to do if you're exporting to particular territories. But to be brutally honest, in-country expertise is really what you need to understand how to set yourself up, how to mitigate any tax liabilities. And it isn't just customs duty, it's clearly corporate tax, whether you have a permanent establishment, how you build that supply chain is about that individual knowledge and individual country knowledge. Yeah, I'm glad you've mentioned supply chains because two things. I, I want to get Ian to tell me about the global supply chains, the, the changes, in fact, that we, we've seen in relation to that and what it means for UK businesses. And also, I want to get your response, Lorne, because clearly, having listened to what Lorenzo said, it really validates the model that you have on the ground working with the distributors. But if we can go to Ian first and then Lorne. Thanks, Julietta. I mean, we have seen significant changes in global supply chains, and we also have to recognise the times that we've been through. So therefore, we've not only had COVID-19, but the UK businesses as well have had to deal with and understand the various customs processes related to the end of the Brexit transition period, which we all know has had an impact on exporters. So therefore, there's an understanding of what the processes are, and Lorenzo is much better placed than me to talk about that. We've seen that freight rates have risen almost all the way through 2020, which has had an impact on companies' profits, and I'm sure Lorne will recognise this. But we also, and we've been talking about this for quite a while, even pre-COVID days, maybe I'm just old and just keep repeating the same things, Julia, to be perfectly honest about. But it's very important that companies consider their supply chains and consider not just their tier one, and this is what most companies tend to do, the big suppliers, the ones who are strategic to them, they consider their, and they have a very good relationship with their tier one. But there's also the tier two and there's the tier three suppliers. So this is an evaluation all the way across the supply chain in terms of where the goods are coming from, what could be some of the concerns that either through the COVID pandemic with the freight rates or, or where the goods are actually coming from to take a, an overall view of where your business is. And we've also seen that in some cases, businesses have made changes to their supply chain. They've bought supply chains close to the home. They've considered UK manufacturer or nearshore manufacturing. It's a whole plethora of elements that companies need to think, but it's important for you to do that analysis in terms of where your supply chain is before you even get to the moving of the goods from an exports point of view. It's important that you understand this and you, it's important that you understand the ramifications of the way you can move goods or indeed services. Mm. And Lorne, your response to that as well, because again, you've used the distributors, but it's the people on the ground in those local markets. 
Yeah, I think for us, going to back and um, you know, the guys are right, supply chain is where you start with sort of your supply chain. Yeah, we've gone through Brexit, we've had the Suez Canal, COVID. Yeah, we were fortunate, we were part of the essential services. We actually continued to manufacture, but our supply chain wasn't. And you've got rising costs now. So as Lorenzo mentioned earlier, well, we had to invest heavily in IT. Our systems weren't capable of actually being able to cope post-Brexit. So we, we've had to adapt our, our systems. We have a supply chain who are telling us now, look, their costs are going up double digit at the moment, quite significantly. And then that's without actually getting the goods actually shipped into the UK. So all of a sudden, if you're paying FOB and then you're not getting the goods actually for yeah, it's rather than two weeks, it's, it's six weeks. All of a sudden, your working capital is getting stretched. It's costing you more. Also, you may then look at sort of like, do you fly sort of raw materials over, flying them over? Again, the cost is huge. So there are so many, we are really, get, as manufacturers, getting a really, really squeezed sort of at the moment. And it's very, very tricky at the moment how you juggle it. But for us, we could stock out of a mainframe or a tire, or it could be a tiny little washer. The impact's the same. You, we can't make bikes. We can't make bikes. We've got six, over 600 staff. What do we do with them? Now, the, the most important thing through this is relationships. And we it's all great. We've adapted to this new world of Zoom and Teams call. But what we're feeling as a business, to be able to meet our suppliers, you know, go out for dinner and see what's going on, and talk to them about their family. Those relationships are the bit that's kind of like, that's kept us going at the moment. You know, because all of our supply chain, they've got everyone after the stock, everybody. And you can look at dual supply, but ultimately below your supplier, it's the same source. It's the same issue. So relationships with your suppliers and your supply chain is critical. Yeah, because I mean, when people talk about the supply chain, lawn, you're absolutely right. It is about this thing called having that relationship, because once you've got that good, stable relationship, it makes it easier to penetrate that market even further. And who knows, to actually go to a new one. Can you see yourself staying loyal to this model, given that COVID-19 has thrown up a fair few challenges? Or do you feel that in some way you may have to modify it? I think for us, our model and uh, yeah, the core of our business, we are a British manufacturer. That That is what we stand for. And you could say, for instance, we set up a, a factory in Taiwan. Now, the guy who's running that factory for us could take all of our IP, all of our secrets and go to a factory across the road. Wouldn't even have to move house. So there's a protection element with our IP. This means that's why we um, manufacture in the UK. But it's where we live. It's our bloody business. This is where we want to be. And also, as a British business, we want to fly the flag. We want to recruit and develop sort of stuff. You know, we've done well over this period. We've traded. We've got more people on bikes. But we've used that as an opportunity to invest heavily. You know, our, our headcount has, has increased by about 40% in the last year. We're going to be even bigger over the next 12 months. We want to invest because we want to change how people move in cities. So if we're going to get more people like Lorenzo off of the tube and we're going to get them on the bike, we need to invest in our business. So for us, it's complex. Let's not get away from the fact doing business and supply chain is complex. But we're a British manufacturer and that's at the heart of our people at the heart of what we do. So there are no plans at all to adapt that. I mean, that's interesting as well, Lorenzo, because I mean, I love the point that Law made there about IP and intellectual property, because that's often the deterrent for some companies to actually go into target markets. But if that's a negative, 
what are the positives of setting up a physical presence in a market that you've got your eye on? I think in the moment, sorry, I've, I've, got to, I've got to ask, Law, if you, if you have a saddle in the shape of an armchair, then I'm with you all the way. But <laughs> so, so let me, let me, let me go back. You can also put pedals at the end of the armchair. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be great. That'd be great. So let, let, let me go back to the question. Yeah, set, set, physically setting up, clearly part of it is about control and it's being there and being able to control the customs processes. And I'm going to concentrate on the customs processes. It also gives you the ability to legitimately play with values in terms of the value that you might end up paying customs duty on. So if you if you have a physical presence, you, you potentially can look at transfer pricing, you're stripping margin out of that value that you have to account for customs duty on. And I think again, as Lauren was talking about, you know, that the relationship and having the relationship being in country and having the relationship with your distributors, with your customers has to be a good thing. So that there are positive benefits to being in country. There are also areas where you might want to have an arm's length approach and you might want to use service providers like 3PLs who deal with the physical process for you rather than get involved in the risk of permanent establishments, corporate tax, as well as the customs issue. So I think it is a double-edged sword and it really does depend on the individual business and your view of where you want to be in, in, in the sort of five to 10 year period. Two questions for you, Lorne. First up, I mean, look, clearly the bike does have a brilliant foreign presence, that international presence. So looking back, what have, you, what, what have been the biggest challenges in building that international presence? And secondly, Lorenzo talked about the armchair bicycle. Does that mean that the intellectual property belongs to him? I think it does, actually. He's going to have to quickly register it. There is no... I cannot recommend in going global high enough, but the most important thing, firstly, is being nimble. There is no standard approach to how you go global. You know, we, we have our tier ones, tier twos, and tier three of, of territories. Tier one, it's not just investment with regards to marketing, it's investment with time, it's resource that you need to do as well. So we have, as mentioned earlier, there's a distributor model. We've done a JV in China. We, we've just, we had a JV for the past five years, but we've now bought out our JV partner, so we own the territory. So you can go in whole hog and actually own the territory. For us, we've been tentative origin at the first instance, either for a JV or distributor, got a bit of a dip to toe in the water, and then we've kind of taken back distribution or, or we've gone for it. For us as well, it, okay, we, we manufacture, we have a, prod, a product, so a physical presence is very important. So opening flagship stores, you know, our, our New York store is, you know, I think our third highest in the world. Our Singapore store that we opened 18 months ago is our global number one store. And we just would never have imagined that. Yeah, you know, we opened in Paris last Saturday. We signed on San Francisco yesterday. You know, Shanghai moves in July to a brand new store that we're moving. At. So you, we've got we've been bold with it because what we're trying to do is educate people who don't know our brand, who don't know how a Brompton can help them get a work. But I think the, the biggest challenge around it is culture. Without a shadow of a doubt. Now, every business has a culture. Every territory has a culture. And how you can merge these cultures and get this under. So you want to employ local, but at the same instance, you want to be able to capture what your company stands for and get that ingrained in the team. And that's a real challenge. You know, what are the challenges that we faced with in the early days of um, exporting? I went to Sao Paulo and I was in Brazil and I, had, I was with two absolute Bronson nuts. And in the morning, they picked me up in a taxi and we were going two miles and we sat for an hour in a taxi. 
And at the heart of this was, oh, no, 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 you can't cycle to work. Poor people do that. We can go out at lunchtime on our bike. That's absolutely fine, but not to go to work. And so you have to understand how people will use your product or your service in those territories. You know, in Europe, the bike is more utilitarian. In Asia, it's more leisure. It's a trophy. It's polished. It's immaculate. But in Europe, we beast it. We kind of just use it as a tool to get from A to B. So you must understand the market. But I think primarily the big takeaway is the culture. You cannot underestimate the challenges with culture. Uh, absolutely. I mean, Lorenzo, is there something you wanted to add to that before I bring Ian back into the conversation? No, I, I, I absolutely understand the Sorry, I, I what, what Norman said. I took the hand gesture as, as a sign of you wanted to uh, join in. I suspect that you probably want to talk about this bike, this alternative bicycle design. You can do that afterwards, okay? So save it for later. But look, Ian, Will come do. back into the conversation because we've been hearing there about the importance of culture, really understanding it. But look, you're dealing with businesses all the time. very ambitious. They already may have a foreign presence, but particularly want to expand that. So from your perspective, how do you and your team ensure that companies wanting to go into the exporting area actually gain the confidence to explore those overseas opportunities, but also get the culture, understand what it is that you are venturing into? Otherwise, if you make a mistake, it can be very expensive. Well, I mean, the, the word is confidence, isn't it? And, we, you know, we've heard from Lorne and, and I'm lucky enough to know and Brompton Bikes for a number of years. And, and, and the passion that comes from their product is all, you know, it, it seeps through everything and every time you speak to someone from, from Brompton. And, and the belief in your product and belief in the market. And there are some interesting points made by Lorne there that, you know, some of these markets, China and the US, for example, are, they are huge places. So therefore, it's about what's the city and what are the differences within the city? Because Northern China is definitely different than southern China with Shanghai, which is very much metropolitan. And you have to look at those marketplaces. So from a banker's point of view, we get the confidence from our customers and we try to fill them back with the confidence by giving them information sessions such as this. But more importantly, given the fact that we're a global bank, we understand some of these markets. We have people in these markets and we can provide some information. We've also teamed up with Make UK very recently to give a guide to exporting. Sometimes it's a reminder to those existing um, exporters, but also to, to convince some companies who don't currently export that there are some huge values in this and from a banker's point of view this is very financial so I apologize but you diversify risk there are more opportunities so therefore you are not concerned if one market goes down if you've got a diversified I think Lord mentioned he was in 46 you think of the opportunities that gives a company like Brompton for growth it's just absolutely huge but there are a few things companies have to think about first thing is the leadership of the company needs to be prepared to go for it and we've heard Lorne talk and, you know, I've, I've spoken to Will on many occasions. There's a belief there that the Brompton is going to change the world and therefore this is good for society to do that. So the leadership really needs to make the decision to go for it. Lorenzo's talked about the next stage, which is set up, which is do the analysis on the marketplace, take advice, understand what the processes are, think about your market. Lorne's a great example there in terms of when he went to a city and most people thought that you take a taxi as opposed to a bike. It's understanding that market, understand the relationships get people to give you advice. You also then need to think about the approach. Look at the processes you're gonna to need to adhere to. And there are more processes involved in exporting than there would be from just selling down the road, but it's more exciting, it's more diverse in terms of the risk opportunities. And then you need to start preparing for how are you physically gonna get your goods there if you're a manufacturer of goods, or indeed how are you gonna get your people there if you're a service 
factor. And, and how are you going to get paid, which is where the bankers come into these things? Because it's all well and good having a strategy, but the whole purpose of you moving either a good or service is to enhance the profitability of your business. So how are you going to get paid? There's some different rules related to exporting. And then you just need to execute it. Sounds very simple for a banker to say, Juliet. Very simple. <laughs> well, you wouldn't be a banker otherwise, would you? <laughs> but look, some great sound notes on, on which to end there. Great advice from all of our, our panel there. Gentlemen, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much for being a part of this very special panel and sharing your thoughts. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.